For the recording, for the video, the audio, whatever it is, welcome to our Articles of Religion class. It's been a couple of weeks, so we had uh, Ash Wednesday and then I was out of town, but we are resuming with Article 32, which you can find on page 609 in the 1928 Book of Common Prayer. Article 32 of the Marriage of Priests. Bishops, priests, and deacons are not commanded by God's law either to vow the estate of single life or to abstain from marriage. Therefore, it is lawful for them as for all other Christian men to marry at their own discretion as they shall judge the same to serve better to godliness. Now, before we get into the article, um, something I forgot to say, um, the North American Anglican is publishing article by article about once a week uh, Brown's commentary, uh, Edward Brown, E.B. Brown's commentary, and that's what we're using. It's in the public domain. That's the main text I've been using. So you can find that at northamanglican.com, northamanglican.com. And they are up to, oh, I think article seven at this point. Every now and again, they got to split it up into a couple different parts for an article because it's just really long. But um, it's it's well worth the read. Um, it's it's a It's a an online journal that's well worth the subscription if you haven't got it. One, one of the folks that has popped in from time to time here said, hey, Father, this is great. Have you read this? I'm like, yes, this is what we've been talking about for the last 10 weeks. <laughs> but that's okay. Uh, not, I mean, it, it doesn't always, uh, does, does always, I've always made it clear. So um, you can find that there. It's well worth the subscription. And from time to time, I do contribute over there uh, about once or twice a year. Okay, back to Article 32, Commercial Breakover. So bishops, priests, and deacons are not commanded by God's law to abstain from marriage. So this, of course, is, oh, we do have someone popping in. Let me admit Mickey real quick. Okay, so this, this article, number 32, about uh, clerical marriage is, of course, addressing the practice that by the time of the Reformation was normal in the Western church and is still normal in, um, in the Roman Catholic Church today, which is that of clerical celibacy. Um, I, I've heard it said that um, among, uh, like in the, in the early days of some of the, the Catholic missionaries to like the Far East, for example, when they might have started a little mission and then they dropped off, um, for whatever reason, maybe the priests got executed, but some of the Christians still met in secret, things like that. Um, that one of the things the priests would tell their people is, okay, if anything happens and we get cut off, you'll know that it's the real church because, you know, we have unmarried priests and, you know, some other stuff like that. Um, so that had become the practice um, really stemming from Rome out to the rest of the church definitely normal by the time of the Reformation, but something that, as our article said, is not commanded in Scripture. And in fact, everybody admits that in the earliest ages of the church, all three orders of the church, bishops, priests, and deacons, including the apostles themselves, um, were allowed to marry and did marry. Um, you know, we have uh, St. Paul talking about uh, 
you know, the other apostles and their wives. We have an instance where Jesus goes and heals Peter's mother-in-law. I mean, that tells you if he heals Peter's mother-in-law, that tells you Peter had a wife, right? Um, so, I mean, everybody agrees that in the earliest days, they were allowed to marry. Now, Brown, when he's talking about here, he, he, he notes that at least at the time he's writing, so this is still 19th century, late 19th century, that um, the typical way that the Roman Catholic Church would talk about the apostles marrying, say, well, maybe the apostles had wives, but they didn't bring them with them. They were left at home. They basically left their wives for the ministry. Um, I don't think that's currently what Roman Catholic apologists would say. Um, they would more say, this is the discipline of the West. It's not a doctrine. Um, that said, it's a very venerable discipline for Roman Catholicism. So uh, St. Clement of Alexandria and some of the other church fathers, um, they, they talk about Peter and Philip and even St. Paul being married, some of them having children. Um, all, all of these things come from later times in church history. So we really don't know if, you know, who had children, who all was married, other than we do know Peter was married, uh, because the, the, the scripture tells us that himself. But in, in times of everything else, we don't really know for sure, um, though we do see that, that the earliest church, church fathers had no problems with even the apostles being married, let alone um, bishops and, and, and deacons and priests. But we do see that from the very earliest times, second marriages were a disqualification for ordination. And now that typically was by this time was really not so much an issue of multiple marriages, you know, having more than one wife. That was pretty much done away with for leaders of the church in New Testament times. Um, that was a disqualifying factor biblically having more than one wife. Um, but we do see second marriages typically in terms of divorce. Now, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament had provisions for divorce, right? And Jesus even talks about that. Jesus tells them, well, the reason for this is because your heart was hard. And so the, the earliest, the earliest, um, from the very earliest times, uh, a single marriage was the, the, the ideal for, for, for in the church, you know, one marriage for life. Um, it was, it was seen that the, the sexual ethic and the marriage ethic in the new Testament is stricter than that in the old Testament. And that really is a pattern that we see when it comes to sexual ethics is that, uh, the new Testament is actually stricter than the old Testament was. Um, again, Jesus tells us why it's because your heart was hard <laughs> and, um, you know, that's part of progressive revelation. But um, so, so from the earliest times, a priest who would divorce and get remarried um, would, be, would be defrocked, or a man who had been divorced and, and remarried could not be ordained. Um, this ends up becoming eventually, and I'm not quite sure the timeline on this, it becomes a thing where uh, a lot of the church, and this is still the case among the parts of Roman Catholicism where they do have married priests, such as the Eastern Catholics and some of the Anglican ordinariate that joined with Rome, they will allow a married man to be ordained, but not an ordained man to marry. 
So if your wife dies, you can't get remarried and still be ordained. And that's this, that's currently among Rome and the Eastern Orthodox, um, that it, it is not permitted for an ordained man to be married. Um, but really what, what we see, again, the most universal thing is, is a prohibit, pro, prohibition on uh, clergy divorcing and remarrying, um, something that was not the norm among the rabbis. Like this is something where the church set itself really intentionally in contrast with Judaism of the earliest days, because they were seeing Jesus give a stronger ethic than that of, um, of, of the synagogue, even that of Moses. Um, this ends up developing into a really exaggerated esteem for clerical celibacy. What once became kind of a, you know, we, we, we see things like when, when St. Paul says in First uh, Corinthians 7 that um, the single life is uh, that, you know, St. Paul specifically says, this is my opinion. <laughs> this is not of the Lord. This is from me. I think it's better if you don't marry because basically it's more convenient to the life of ministry to not have the distractions of a family and those worldly, um, worldly, not in a bad sense, just, you know, the, the things of the world, having to worry about taking care of somebody else, a household, a business, that sort of thing. And so um, there was, we, we see this combined with that high sexual ethic that we see coming from the New Testament, eventually evolves into a, um, what Brown calls an exaggerated esteem for celibacy in the church. Um, exactly how that advances, especially in the Western church, is, is kind of hard to trace exactly, but we do know that by the 11th century, the popes were really, really pushing for it and trying to keep it, keep it from keep, keep celibacy as the norm. Um, England was one of the always one of the last holdouts. The the, the English Church uh, didn't, in many ways, didn't like to line themselves up with Rome, and this is one of those areas. We don't really see it until the early 12th century that in England they're really able to to kind of make an unmarried priesthood the norm. Um, and we certainly see by the Reformation, all the reformers were opposed to vows of celibacy for the ordained um, because it wasn't biblical. You know, and that's 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 the the main issue for the reformers is, is that it's that it's um, the only thing that can bind the conscience is, is that which is biblical. Archbishop Cranmer himself was married not only once but twice. He was a he was a widower. Um, one of one of his I think it was his first wife um that that she did die i believe in childbirth um she was the niece of the uh german reformer um osiander so she she he was married into the german reformation before the english reformation even happened um and this was kind of done in secret <laughs> because in england at that time one of the things henry the eighth was really pushing for was to maintain clerical celibacy but there were other english bishops such as bishop ridley who, um, while he disapproved on restrictions for marriage, he didn't think that those who had previously vowed to celibacy because they were ordained prior to the Reformation should go back on those vows. Like he thought, if you've already vowed it, just keep the vow. Um, obviously, that was not the way everybody thought. Uh, Martin Luther, <laughs> you know, he was a monk. He ended up getting married uh, to an ex-nun, actually. 
Um, and uh, again, we see our own Archbishop Cranmer. The Council of Trent and the Counter-Reformation, Rome's response to the Reformation, they have one uh, canon that is that condemns all those who would permit clergy to marry. Um, and then to this day, even though in the Eastern Church, they do have married deacons and priests, they do not have married bishops. And what happens in the Eastern Church is that they do have, all monks are, have vows of celibacy. That's part of becoming a monk. So if you are a cleric who is a monk, you, you, are, you cannot marry. And again, if you, you must be married before you're ordained in the Eastern Church. All bishops are drawn from the, from the monks um, in the Eastern Church. You never have a, quote, secular priest made into a bishop to this day. So what, are the, what does the Bible have to say? Well, um, it's very clear that both the Lord and St. Paul give preference to an unmarried life in terms of the ministry, um, because as Brown says, it's more favorable uh, as being a more favorable state for religious self-devotion than the state of matrimony. Um, and our Lord, what the Lord says is, he that is able to receive it, let him receive it. Um, not everybody can receive it, <laughs> right? And, and in, again, many of the apostles were that way. Uh, Paul's language is very similar. Um, you know, he, he certainly recommends marriage to some, but um, as a general rule, but that's kind of more permission than command. Nobody's commanded to get married. Um, and and, and he, he does see the unmarried life as better for the ministry than the married life, again, because you just have more concerns when you're married. You have to worry about a family. Um, I, I can I can definitely say you know I was I was ordained before I was married. I was um, uh, I was a priest before I got married, but I was I was ordained a deacon about oh I don't know a year or so before I before I got married. Maybe not that long, but um, yeah, there there's a lot more cares. I mean the ministry as a single guy was a lot easier. <laughs> I mean, it's just the way it is. You know, Paul, Paul was right. Um, but, but again, we don't see St. Paul or the Lord uh, finding fault with marriage. There's nothing wrong with marriage. Um, but it's just that they recognize on a practical level, ministry is a lot easier. And, and for us to this day, especially among Protestants, you're going to find that marriage tends to be more of the ideal among the among the clergy than celibacy. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say stuff like, well, um, how can a priest that is single be able to give marriage counseling or talk to people in that life? And yes or no, but you know, my, my parents told me one time that the best marriage advice they ever got was from a Catholic priest who was not married. So I mean that, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. But we do we do see Typically in our culture, especially among Protestants, we see celibacy as inferior to, to the married life, if not something we look down upon. And in fact, how many of our current, um, our current cultural issues over um, sexual ethics, you know, the, the controversies in our society right now, and, and really that departure from the biblical norm on many of these areas is because we just can't fathom a celibate life as being one that's fulfilling. 
like, like we've bought into Freud here, <laughs> right? Um, and so to, to the point where, where much of our society sees our identity is tied up in our sexual preferences and appetites, like who I am is, is this. And that's very unfortunate. That's not the scriptural picture. And the scriptural picture, um, ma marriage is good, but it's for a purpose, right? It's not for self-fulfillment. It's for raising godly children, for um, uh, pro providing a non-sinful outlet for, for, for sexuality, and to be a picture of Christ in the church. I mean, that, that's, that's what it is scripturally. It's not about me. And this idea that, that marriage is about me and my fulfillment is relatively new. We don't see that being the norm even 100 years ago. 100 years ago, you get married to start a family, right? You, you, you don't get married to find yourself. I mean, and, and, and who does, right? I mean, all of us in this room right now, we've been married for a long time. We know a lot better than that, right? <laughs> yeah, like, like you said, Pam, we, we, you really got to lose yourself if you're getting married. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's really the main thing. Um, now there, there's a few things that, that, that Brown also points out. I think that is, that is important. He says, if we look at the old Testament, we see that not only were the priests allowed to marry, but they were encouraged to marry that, that remains the Jewish norm to this day. Um, some of the apostles were certainly married. That's, that's an issue. Um, and I, I think the idea that, that Brown was talking about in his day, that the apostles just kind of left their wives behind, that just doesn't really fit the picture um, that we would see in scripture. Um, you know, Paul even tells bishops and deacons to be the husbands of one wife, right? You know, and I've heard clergy, including Anglican clergy say, well, that means that you best be married if you're a priest. Well, that's not, that doesn't line up with everything that St. Paul says. I mean, that's kind of swinging the extreme to the other side, right? But, um, but we do see Paul, Paul talk about family life for the ordained. And um, then we see in Hebrews, it talks about in Hebrews 13, verse 4, marriage is honorable in all men. And so if it's honorable, we, we, we surely can't prohibit, <laughs> right? If it's done in, in a biblical and godly way. And then again, he says, above all, marriage is a type of the union of Christ and his church. I think that's really important. Um, now, and now all that is, despite that there are many benefits to the church for an unmarried priesthood, but those benefits, that practical expediency cannot be set against the word of God. And that's really the point for the, for the, uh, the reformers. That's all I have for Article 32. Uh, questions, comments on Article 32. Richard. Would it have to be around Constantine's time? Um, what, was that a Constantine thing? Uh, no, no, that happens much later. Um, and Constantine um, is is really occurring more in the in the East, and that never becomes a thing in the East. Like by the time Constantine converts the weight of the culture as well as the political power in Rome had shifted from Rome to Constantinople, from the Latin speaking part of the empire, the Western part of the empire to the Eastern part. And yeah, that Eastern part never had that as an issue. It was very much a Western Roman thing. And, and it seems that where that starts to get traction is with the rise of monasticism and, it, and monasticism becomes idealized um, in, in all the church, but especially in the West. 
And so the, 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 the popes start to really prefer that and start to kind of push that and it trickles down in the rest of the West. Whereas in the East, they still kind of made a distinction between regular clergy and monastic clergy. And even if we want all of our bishops to be monks, you know, they, they, they never really had that issue. And, and again, Constantine is really a function of that rise of the East, the Eastern Church. Yeah. Uh, any, 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 anything else? Sure, go for it, Richard. Keep, keep them coming. <laughs> yeah. So that actually comes up a bit in the in the next article, um, but but we can address it now because it's kind of tangential to the next article. The question for the tape was, and for those of you all on Zoom, um, confessing only to a priest you know, kind of that private confession, that requirement coming up. Um, we see that in the earliest times of the church, uh, confession was what tended to be public, even if it was a single person confessing their sins, it tended to be those that were excommunicated, which is what the next article is about, making their penance publicly. The weight of that shifts from, as the weight shifts to private confession, um, it kind of takes the teeth out of the church when it comes to some of the discipline and the way that our prayer book sees it. And this is consistent with pretty much all the reformers um, is that we would never make private confession to your clergy, a, a requirement for anything, but we would say that that's something that is there for somebody who usually the main the main reasons there is for somebody whose conscience is really bothering them like they just think they need to talk it out you know it's, it's more of a it's more of a almost more of a counseling thing than a confessing thing although confession will often be part of that um i have a few people that do come to me regularly because that's just their discipline um you know and they, maybe they're they they picked it up from kind of more roman catholic versions or um some of the more anglo-catholic versions because a lot of the the as the Anglo-Catholic movement really idealizes some of the pre-Reformation Church of England stuff and that connection with the greater Western church, um, they often elevate some of the things that the reformers were not so happy with, such as private confession. So some, some, of, some of that's that. And, you know, people that that's their discipline, that's fine, whatever. I have no problem with that. I, I never turn anybody away from confession. But the primary reason for private confession would be if somebody just has a troubled conscience. Now, other people who come to me regularly, they do it once or twice a year, like Ash Wednesday, Good Friday, or that kind of thing. I mean, I have a few people that, that would do that. Um, but uh, but yeah, that, the main reason why our prayer book encourages, and I would encourage, is to ease the troubled conscience. But that's, yeah, that's certainly not a discipline of the early church that's something that develops. And again, most, especially in the West, I think they have private confession in the East, but they don't make it a requirement for communion or to be forgiven the way that it is in the, in the West or in, in, in Rome, really, I should say, the, 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 the non-reformed West. You got, you got any more? All right, let's, let's get number three. Yeah. What statues mm -hmm. in the church 
that didn't start out that way. That came somewhere along the way that we were around us. Statues and mirrors and whatever else. And uh, we had that both of them in our church. And uh, people prayed for them. Yeah. Mary standing there like this, and there was candles below the mirror. Right. The candle we knew that, and I assume they prayed to her with the same person, the same thing. Yeah, so this this brings up kind of two issues. Again, these are issues that the Roman that the reformers were not happy with in the developments in the Roman Church in the in the medieval Western Church, um, and those issues are praying to the saints and then the issues of images. Um, we would generally see the the second commandment, uh, which is not to make any graven images, is specifically referring to worship. And we did have in the eighth century, there was the, the last of the ecumenical the kind of, the, yeah, the ecumenical councils, we would call them, most of the church would call them, the seventh one was over that controversy of images. Um, not to get too much into the weeds here, but what the council did decree was that um, images in of themselves are not wrong. And in, in fact, the council, really was very, very happy with images. But when they're talking about images in the, in the context of the eighth century council of the second council of Nicaea, they're generally talking more about icons like we have in the chapel um, and very much the Eastern practice of using the icons as an aid in prayer, um, praying not to the icon, but to Jesus through the icon, for example. Um, the Western church was never happy with that council. Like it took, it took hundreds of years, much far, far after the East-West split for the Western church to make its peace with Nicaea too. So when you see, for example, in our own book of homilies and the, in the homily against the peril of idolatry in the second book of homilies, they're kind of bashing the seventh council. That's very much standing with, within the established Western understanding at that time. Some of that had to do with linguistic issues between Greek and Latin, like the translations into Latin were really bad. Some of it had to do with politics between Char Charlemagne and the Eastern powers, <laughs> you know, Charlemagne being kind of, he, he becoming the, the Western emperor for the first time in a long time. Um, but in the meantime, the West develops from, rather than using that more Eastern approach with icons, they do develop more statues. And they do imbue the statues with a lot of superstitions. Now, no Roman Catholic theologian would say that they are praying to a statue. They would say we are praying to Mary or to St. Joseph, but they would never say we're praying to a statue. They say just the statues there kind of is a visual aid or something like that. Um, in general, the Eastern church would have problems with statues. That's not what they meant when they were, when we had the seventh council. So pretty much everybody at the time of the reformation, other than Rome had an issue with the way Rome was using the statues. There was a lot of superstition involved. Um, there, there continues to be in some circles, a lot of superstition, even if it's not as officially sanctioned as it might've been at the time of the reformation. I mean, we live in San Antonio. How many people bury a statue of St. Joseph upside down in their yard so they can sell their house, right? I mean, that's a common, common superstition in the culture, or at least some of the cultures that are represented here in our town. 
Um, you know, how many people pray to St. Jude if they lost their keys? You know, I mean, that, that's, those are other common things. The reformers had a big issue with prayers to the saints as well. Um, the main issue that the reformers had with that was that, it, that all of these things did seem um, to them idolatrous. And I think we can say the way it was being used at the time of Reformation um, was flirting with idolatry if it wasn't out and out idolatrous. And some of that superstition that continues to this day can be as well. That said, you know, to be fair to, to Rome and to the East, because in the East, they also do pray to the saints. Their, their logic goes like this. Um, they, make a, they make a distinction between what we would probably translate in, in, in English today as veneration and worship. Um, the English has shifted, so some older documents might flip those terms, but today, in today's English, we would call the lesser form in Greek latria, we would call that veneration, but, um, I'm sorry, dulia, rather, is, is I'm, I'm, I'm getting my Greek mixed up, oh my goodness, someone's gonna, someone's gonna listen to this and scream at me, um, but yeah, dulia is what we would call veneration, and that's kind of respect and that sort of thing. And the saints can receive dulia, and they can even receive dulia, they would say, through the icons, even, you know, maybe in, in a Roman Catholic perspective, through the candles and, and statues and that sort of thing. Um, hyperdulia is only reserved for the, for, the, for the Virgin Mary, so that kind of upper end of veneration. But true worship, and the Greek there, latria, is only for God alone, and they would make a very strong distinction. And that's one of the things that comes out of that seventh council. Most of the reformers thought that that was a distinction without a difference. Again, they're seeing a lot of the practices going on in their days. Um, so they, again, you know, pretty much all the reformed churches, the Lutherans, the reformed, all those guys said, you know, we're not going to pray to saints. Um, the Lutherans maintained images um, as something that was indifferent, as long as you weren't worshiping them. The Reformed did not, and we tended to follow the Reformed, the English church, um, in this for the most part, again, as evidenced by that homily in the second book of homilies. Um, I think scripturally the Lutherans have a better take than the Reformed do on this, because um, even the Reformed would have admitted that images for the purposes of, you know, even John Calvin, for the purpose of education is not a bad thing. It just, they just had an issue with it as part of worship. And that's understandable. So later reform that kind of has this thing against any depictions of the Lord at all as being idolatrous, that doesn't fit within the early reformed or the, the Lutheran perspective. It would certainly not fit within ours as Anglicans. Um, nor would we traditionally, historically pray to the saints. The argument for praying to the saints that you might even hear among some Anglo-Catholics is that if these people are actually alive and with the Lord, then what's the difference between asking the Blessed Virgin Mary to pray for me and me asking Pam to pray for me? In fact, because they're before the Lord, it might even be better. It would be, it would be the logic. The counter argument to that is we don't know that they actually can hear us. I mean, you know, you know, and, and we and we don't see anywhere in Scripture um, that practice being commended. So um, 
for my part, I, I wouldn't say that my Catholic friends and family are being idolatrous, but I would, I myself would want to err on the side of caution with that. And if people say, well, both the East and the West do it in terms of the Orthodox and the Romans, is that, that's fine. I don't care. <laughs> I mean, that's their business. You know? um, my, 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 my rule is the scriptures and where, where, where the church traditions, um, when it comes to issues of faith and morals, if the church traditions are not found in scripture, you, you can't make that, you can't make that compulsory. Matter of fact, you might want to be a little wary of it, we would say. Right. Yeah, and I think I think that last part you said there, Pam, that they do not have the same attributes of God in terms of omniscience, omnipresence. The saints don't have those. So how so so that that's that's where I would want to be cautious. Um, if they can hear our prayers, it's only because God is allowing that in some some way, right? I mean, that's not part of that's not part of what it means to be to be man. <laughs> um, the other part you, you mentioned about the chasm in the parable of the uh, rich man and Lazarus, um, that chasm is in the parable. That's between. Yeah, that's basically between heaven and hell, or you know, paradise and 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 damnation. Not not necessarily talking about what's going on with the uh, with, with 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 yeah, those on earth versus those in heaven. Um, again, just 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 try to be as fair as possible. Um, let's let's push on then, unless you all have anything else with this article. Those and some of those were a little bit of field of Article Twenty Thirty Two, but they do touch on some of those things that we had issues with with Rome. <laughs> Um, that, that were addressed in some other articles, but it's good to good to discuss these things. Um, let's let's move into article number thirty three, again page six hundred nine. Of excommunicate persons, how they are to be avoided. This is not a comfortable article for today's today's society. That persons which by open denunciation of the church is rightly cut off from the unity of the church and excommunicated ought to be taken of the whole multitude of the faithful as an heathen and a publican until he be openly reconciled by penance and received into the church by a judge that hath authority thereunto. So this is talking about a couple of issues. One is the very real um, authority that the church has in terms of, in terms of excommunication and the responsibility that the faithful have when it comes to that. Um, I just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I believe. I could be wrong on that. But in 1 Corinthians, I just read the other day about Paul talking about, okay, you've got people in your midst who are in notorious sin, and you guys should be disciplining them, but instead you're rejoicing in this. Like you're proud of their, of their sin. He says, no, you need to cut these guys off until they repent. Um, you know, don't have fellowship with that. He goes on to say, I'm not talking about the world because then you couldn't have, you couldn't really ever talk to anybody in the world. I'm talking about brothers. You know, so this is, this is really a Christian issue, an in-house issue. 
So um, we do see that cutting off people as a punishment um, from the community is something that is uh, commanded in the in the Old Testament. We see that, and and we end up with kind of a as as Judaism develops a three three levels of excommunication. So there's one level which is separation for a month, and it could be extended, um, and those are for for impenitence, and that's for things that do do. Um, cause problems in the community that are sins. Um, but if it's really, really, really severe, there's going to be um, an excommunication that so so for the first one, you're basically, you're basically um, kept out of worship, you know, out, out of the gathering, the public gathering for about a month, possibly extended to two or three months. The next kind you'd be you'd be um, basically taking a curse upon yourself or you, you'd be given a curse with that excommunication. And that's a, uh, and that sort of person would, would, would to be shunned by the whole community. And that's for particularly severe, um, severe sins and infractions. And then there's a heavier form, um, with a, with a different word in Hebrew. And, and I mean, for those that, that, that care, the, uh, the first form is, is, is Nidui, the second one is Cherem, and the third one is Shamata. Um, and exactly what that third one looked about, we're not 100% sure. Those second and the third might've been the same. It might've been a degree of similar, um, but it doesn't really matter. The point being there is we did see degrees. And it seems that the earliest times of the Christian church, they kind of did something similar. Um, so the way this ended up working, we do see that excommunication as part of the discipline of the church happens almost immediately in the church. Even Jesus talks about it in Matthew 18, which we'll get to a little bit. So the first level, um, which we would, we would translate the, the Greek word as separation, that consisted of excluding the offenders from participation in um, the Eucharist. So now they would be present for the liturgy of the word, but they would be removed from church at the, at the canon. So they would not participate in the, in the liturgy of the table. Um, basically they're being treated as if they are um, not yet baptized people that are part of the community. I mean, that's basically, they're, they're basically treated as, as the unbaptized. Okay, you get to hear the word of God, but then you need to go out. You can't participate in this, in, in, in what the, this unique thing, the Eucharist. Um, there was a greater excommunication, um, anathema, total separation. And that would exclude them from all church fellowship and communion. Uh, they couldn't. They couldn't. They couldn't come for prayer. They couldn't come to the sermon. They couldn't come for hearing the word. They were gone until there was repentance. They were booted out of the community completely. Now, what we saw in the early days of the church is that the uh, often the discipline was, okay, you, you might have one of these sentences for a certain period of time, depending on the offense. And it was usually uh, a, a, a public confession would be the way that you were brought back into the community. You publicly confess, 
it was the penitential discipline um, for either that lesser or greater excommunication. And then they would be reinstated. And it might be, okay, you're, you're found guilty, you publicly confess, there's a, a separation period um, to kind of think about things for whatever reason, either the greater or lesser separation, and then you're brought back. Um, private confession, like we talked about, gradually supersedes this, especially in the West. And what ends up happening is that loosens the discipline of the church. Because it's all being done private, you don't really see excommunication being practiced the way it had been in the early church. Um, but we do where we see excommunication, especially as we get into the Middle Ages being used, is primarily for heretics or being done politically. <laughs> so <laughs> you tick off the Pope, you get excommunicated if you're a ruler, right? Or if, you, or if you're accused of heresy. So Huss and Wycliffe and Luther, they were excommunicated based on this idea of heresy. Um, but uh, the Emperor Henry IV by Gregory VII, <laughs> um, you know, the, the interdict on, on, on England under John by Innocent XIII, all these things are more of the political kind, right? And so our article basically takes things from the universal jurisdiction of the Pope back more to the, to the bishop. It kind of brings it back down to more of the, more of the primitive version. Um, the latter part of the article does speak of reconciliation by penance and the reception of the church by competent judges. Okay, so who are those judges? Well, it's the bishop. I mean, that, that's really the way it goes. We, we do have, the bishop might have a, a court of some sort, but ultimately the bishop sits as the, as the judge in this regards. Um, and really, we only get, as things develop, that really heavy excommunication, excommunication proper really happens for three classes of sins. Basically, um, uncleanness, so basically sexual sin, um, idolatry, you know, heresy or idolatry, religious sin, and then bloodshed, murder. Um, everything else tends to be reconciled more on, on a more local level, an easier thing. Um, now, now, depending on, again, we're talking about some of the early church as it gets in the Middle Ages, but, you know, I mean, some of, some of this is fuzzy, but um, you might even sometimes for the really heavy offenses, they might be excommunicated for as much as 10, 15, 20, 30 years. And in really extreme cases, they may be excommunicated for the rest of their life and only reconciled on their deathbed. Um, so th this was a lot more serious than it ever is done today, right? And again, the bishop is really the, the judge in the, in the case historically. Um, so once we get to the Reformation, um, all, of the, all of the churches of the Reformation do hold discipline, church discipline to be very important. The way they handle that differs from place to place. For, for those of us that retained the episcopacy, the bishop retained that kind of final arbiter there. Um, in the Council of Trent, so again, that response of Rome to the, to the Reformation, they do speak of excommunication being used, quote, soberly and with great circums circumspection. So it's still something that's there. Um, in, in, in the English church, the way it kind of develops is that um, it's very clear in the principles but it tends to be a little bit more restrained in practice. <laughs> we tend to err on the side of um, leniency when it comes to this sort of thing. Um, the rubric before communion uh, gives the minister, the, the rector, the curate, 
Um, and when the when the when the rubric talks about the curate, they are talking about the rector, not the assistant. <laughs> you know, we we tend to use the word curate for the assistant, but that's not really how the prayer book uses it. Um, it really gives two two classes: notorious evil living. So that's issues that cause public scandal, and and again, we're looking at heresy, sexual sin, um, and and bloodshed as the primary things. And then the other one is if there are parties that are at feuding with each other, they might be excommunicated. And this is that what we would have called in the past that lesser excommunication barring from communion. But the bishop needs to get involved. Our rubric in the 28 gives you two weeks to let the bishop know. Um, I've never had to exercise that. It's never, it's, I've never had to do that. And some priests that I know have exercised it too willingly. The bishop had to get involved and kind of rescind some of what <laughs> what the priest did, <laughs> um, and, and our bishop has done it a, a couple of times for very grievous offenses among his clergy, um, and he does have he does have a tribunal for this sort of thing. Um, that's kind of the historical and the and the and the, the contextual, and in terms of the scriptural proof, the main issue we have here is Matthew eighteen verses fifteen and nineteen. Let's pull that up. Um, that is often misused and misunderstood um, among kind of the evangelical world. Um, it's good that it's seen, but they're kind of, they tend to misuse it. So here's, here's the um, verse 15 of Matthew 18, ESV. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Notice there's a very jurisdictional language going on here. This is the language of a court, two or three witnesses, right? Um, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses even to listen to the church, let it be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or three agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So is this passage about two or three about prayer in context? about prayer, the two or three gathered together. No, it's not about prayer. <laughs> we use it that way, <laughs> um, but that's not what it's about, right? E even the, even the, the prayer of St. Chrysostom in the prayer book um, alludes to this, but that's not, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about um, really the, the church sitting in judgment over, over, over sin, and this is particularly notorious sin. The kind of thing we're talking about here, because we see the way it escalates, is the kind of thing that ought to be grounds for excommunication. This is not me and my friend are having an argument and we want to get the church involved. That's not what this is about. Um, and so uh, we'll, we'll see you later, Scott. Thank you for joining us. Um, yeah, that's not, that's not what this is about. This is not about every time there's a dispute, we need to start getting the church involved. Let's be grownups and take care of our, 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 our petty disputes among each other, right? I mean, that, that's, that's, that's what we should do, right? Um, you know what? And, and I can say that, that in my time as rector here at the church, that's generally been the way it's happened. I have almost never had to get involved. Uh, the senior wardens had to get involved once or twice. But um, I can't recall the last time I had to get involved in, in, in a dispute among people here at the church. 
Um, the senior warden's always taking care of it and it got resolved very quickly because we're adults, we can act like adults, right? But so, so, so the issues talking about here really are the kinds of things that can lead to excommunication, um, not just petty disputes. So we do, so I think that's important here. And, and, and this, is, this is talking about excommunication and that needs to be a grave thing. There's a reason why we, we, we kick it up to the bishop, right? Okay, so that's, um, that's, that's the area, that's where, where Jesus talks about it. Um, we see Paul talking about it uh, um, as well. Um, uh, where, where are we here? Do, 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 do. Sorry, moving through my notes here. Um, in, in both of the epistles to the Corinthians, St. Paul does bring it up. And, and again, it's, you know, he's, he's basically saying, okay, these really notorious evil things going on, you should take care, be able to take care of this, <laughs> you know? Um, and, um, yeah, get, get, get your, you know, th this is really before the way we have our, our bishops set up. It was set up. I, mean, I would still say we had a form of the threefold office under a different, it's not, wasn't managed exactly the way we do it now. Things were a little bit looser in those days, but, um, but yeah, we do see the St. Paul talks about it the same. Um, and especially we do see that the Lord gives the apostles the keys of discipline and the apostles expect the rulers of the local rulers, the, the, the local bishop and the elders to be able to do the same. Um, so yeah, the, these, these are a badge of stewardship here. Um, let me see if there's anything, anything else on that article. I think that's really the main thing I, that, uh, to summarize, you know, Brown gets into the weeds a little bit more with regards to some of the scriptural, um, issues and, and, um, with the power of the keys and that sort of thing. So I would encourage you to, uh, if you have a copy or you're able to find a copy online or wait another many weeks for the North American Anglican to bring up article 33 um, to, to check out those. Uh, questions, comments on, on excommunication and article 33. Okay, well, one thing I will add before we close on this, I almost forgot was that among many of the more reformed branches of the church, um, they would have seen the marks of the church as including um, discipline. So they would say where the word of God is rightly preached, the sacraments duly administered and discipline is properly exercised. We did not put that in our definition of the church in our articles, but um, that was very important. The point is to, to the reformers. Okay, well, I'm going to go ahead and call it a night there unless y'all have anything else. All right, and next, next week we will hit article uh, 34, which is on the traditions of the church. God bless. Mm -hmm.